Acts 19. Uh, who was at the 8.30? Who was at Noah's flood? Yeah. So I rarely pray about weather stuff just because I don't. But for some reason, Saturday morning, here's, I prayed this. I said, Father, if it's possible, can we have some cloud cover? And can it be a little cool? <laughs> I have to pray more specifically now. Cloud cover with no rain and no lightning, please. <laughs> so I could not believe it. I'm driving from the 8.30 and I'm looking and I'm like, that's like right over the bowl. And then the lightning started. I'm like, that's gotta be hitting people in the bowl. <laughs> oh no. And I was worried about like the wind because that canopy, I could just imagine like a 30 mile an hour wind, like taking people up in it in not a very good way, so. All right, Acts 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. We looked at this two Sundays ago, uh, this kind of chapter. And what I said is chapter 19 is Acts Condensed. You have the major themes. You have a little mini Pentecost here. Uh, you have um, a city that it gets transformed. It's like uh, a summation of the previous 18 chapters because things are gonna change from chapter 20 forward. It's gonna be about Paul and Paul's journey to Jerusalem, his arrest, and then his testimony time and time again. And then it ends in Rome. So this is like uh, a... a Luke, under God's spirit, just saying, okay, here are the major themes. I hope you get them all, right? So you see a couple themes, and one of them is this. Salvation is always supernatural. These guys had been disciples, praying, I'm sure, reading the Torah, trying as hard as they could for probably 20 years in Ephesus, but they weren't saved. And it took the power of God's spirit to save them. Salvation is always supernatural. So this Sunday, there was no preaching. There was no praise here, right? There was no fellowship. There was nothing. Well, there's fellowship. There's probably fellowship. In the rain, fellowship of suffering. Yes, there was fellowship. <laughs> but uh, there's a guy that just came up. His name is Jake. He said, I want to be baptized, Right? Why? Because it's supernatural. It's not something that we do or we can manufacture. We can get the right ingredients out there to get people to do it. It's God supernaturally saves people. And Jake said, today is my day. And you want to see a great picture of a baptism. 
Look on the Facebook page. He's just got his hands in the air. It's like, yes, phenomenal, because it's super natural, right? But we have a part to play in it, no doubt. So in Romans 10, 14, Paul says this, you know, how will they believe unless somebody tells them, unless there's a preacher that goes out and shares the good news? For some reason, God has decided to partner with frail humans in getting the good news out. Why he does that, I don't know. I think an angel would be much more um, efficient way of doing it. I think a lot more people would believe, but God has said, no, you are my king, you are my queen in training, and I, this is the process by which I raise you up, you sharing the good news, having victories and being faithful in it. So we plant and we water, we do those parts, and God gives an increase, all right? And you see in here, the, really the ingredients of what it means to believe, to be saved. There's repentance, and repentance is this. You look at the big idea of repentance, it's this. It's changing your mind about God. Some people think God's an ogre, or they don't believe in God, or whatever it is. It's then coming to the realization, no, God is my heavenly father, and he loved me so much that he gave his only son to die for me that I might have eternal life that I have to repent of what I used to believe about God. And I'm believing now in, the second part is, in Jesus. And that's what Paul tells these guys. Hey, baptism, repentance was great, but that's just halfway. It's not just turning away from something. You need to now turn to belief in Jesus Christ. And then there's baptism. Water baptism, I've said probably four or five times. In Acts, there are no unbaptized believers. Now, you gotta massage that with 1 Corinthians 1. I No doubt about that. I'm not saying baptism ever saves you. It does not. Jesus saves, period. But it would be, it's, it's like this. If it's like getting married and not wearing a wedding ring. Well, why don't you wear a wedding ring? Well, you wear a wedding ring because it tells everybody, I belong to somebody else. Baptism is saying, I belong to my king, Jesus. And it's like, it goes right along with that. They, they go hand in hand in my theology. Um, and then the last thing you see over and over in Acts, repentance, believing in Jesus, water baptism. And the fourth ingredient you always see is the receiving of the Holy Spirit. That you get this gift of God's spirit. And if you don't have God's spirit, the Bible makes it clear, you're not a believer. First Corinthians 12, 13, we are baptized by the spirit into the, into the body of Christ. Romans chapter eight, verse nine says, if you don't have the spirit, you are not one of Christ's. It's that simple. That's the most definitive text. Once you are baptized, you are immediately given God's spirit, period. And what you see in this little text is Luke is summing this up saying, hey, these guys had repentance. They probably had good works. They had prayer. They had the Torah, but they didn't have Jesus. And without Jesus, you don't have it. That Jesus is the point of the Bible. He's it. Without him, you just don't have it. So for years, these 12 guys had been toiling and there was no work in Ephesus. The moment Jesus comes, fills them with his spirit, explosion. It's a huge point. Without Jesus, we don't have anything. When I read this though, that's all the, okay, great. Luke, you're doing good work there. But my question is always, what would happen if I was walking down the streets of Grants Pass 
and I bumped into the Apostle Paul, would he look at me and say, Matt, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? Ask yourself that question. Would missing God's spirit change your life at all? Or would your life look exactly the same without God's spirit? What would Paul say to me? Somehow he looked at these 12 men, disciples, probably diligent, Bible students, prayer groups, all that. And somehow he looked at them and said, they're missing the most important thing. They're missing the power of God's spirit. And I think the mistake that has been made on certain parts of Christianity is the the gift of the spirit has been interpreted as the gift of tongues. No, you get given the gift of God's spirit. And one of the manifestations, one of the many manifestations of God's spirit can be speaking in tongues. But you don't necessarily see that every time in scripture. Acts doesn't always say, Cornelius is an example, but like um, in Acts 17, Lydia, she doesn't speak in tongues. There are baptisms where that doesn't happen. They're given God's spirit and they're not tongues. So it's one of the manifestations. So I think it's important for a believer to say, well, what does God's spirit do in my life? What's the difference that he makes? So I'm not just a disciple of John, but I'm a disciple of Jesus. What are the differences? Is it emotional? Is it goosebumps? Is it I raise my hands? What's the difference? Can you quantify that? I think you can quantify it. Here's the way I quantify it. I think that you can, in scripture, find three distinct ways that the scriptures will say, here is how you know God's spirit is active in your life. So number one, you will grow in Christ-likeness. 2 Corinthians 3.18, keeping our eyes on the Lord, we are changed, metamorphosized into the same image by the power of the Holy Spirit. That part of the work of God's spirit in any person is to begin to conform us to the image of Jesus. Well, what does that look like? Read the gospels. Just keep reading the gospels. And you keep saying, that's what I wanna look like. That's what I wanna look like. That is awesome. The way Jesus responds to people, his care, his comfort, the way that he is brilliantly courageous no matter what is happening. You just say, that's a true human. That's what I wanna look like. So that's number one. Number two, I think you'll see evident of the fruit of the spirit. Galatians 5.22, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, meekness, temperance. You'll see that fruit becoming evident. Now, it doesn't mean it's always there because sometimes we backtrack, no doubt. Sometimes we disobey, we can quench God's spirit. There's all kinds of things that we can do to disobey God, but there will be a general realization, I'm fruitful. I responded to that person differently. What, what, that was awesome, all right? And then thirdly, I think you'll see an increase in your individual gift that God has given you. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6 and 7 says this. Paul talks to Timothy and he says, stir up the gift that's within you that was given to you by the laying on of hands 
because we have not been given the, the, the spirit of fear, but of love and power and soundness of mind. Am I getting better at the giftings that God has given to me? Because I should be growing in my gift. I should be stirring those things up. But what happens very often is this. Um, the enemy does this to us about our gift. He gets us, it's gift envy. Oh, I wish I had that person's gift. If only I could be better at that. And then you neglect your gift, which could be hugely needed. You don't need another person with that gift, probably. You need someone with your gift and stir that up. Like, I love Ann Graham. She was asked one time if her and Billy Graham ever dis disagreed. And she said, if we didn't, why would there be two of us? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> of course we're gonna disagree. We're two different people. We look at life differently and that's what makes it brilliant and beautiful. So you don't get gift envy. You say, God, what am I supposed to be doing? I wanna stir up my gift. I wanna be used by you. And that may mean, you know what? I don't heal anybody. I don't have a miracle. You may not speak in tongues and that's okay. I'll be faithful to use the gift God has given to me in the way that God wants me to use it. And Jesus says this, Luke 16, if you'll do that, I'll keep giving you more. You'll have an increase. You'll stir up that gift and you will grow in it and you'll get better and better and better at it brilliantly. So I think you can know, right? So Paul gets these guys condensed almost like the first six, seven chapters of Acts. Then verses eight, nine, he entered the synagogue and for three months, he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannius. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greek. So now we get Paul's kind of, this is what he's been doing for chapter 13 through 18. Go in the synagogue first, preach, reason boldly, try to persuade people about the kingdom. And then there's always a rebellion against it. No, we don't like that get out of here. So Paul leaves the synagogue and he goes to the school of Tyrannus. Now that word means literally our tyrant. I know most parents at some point have wanted to name their kids our tyrant, but we mostly resist that evil and we don't name them that. So it's probably not his name given to him at birth. It's probably the nickname his students gave him. He's our tyrant. <laughs> and most Students have wanted to name their principal our tyrant at some point. So Paul goes there, starts to teach. And what does he teach them about? The kingdom. What's the kingdom? Massive question. I'll make it simple. The kingdom is a place where the king rules and the people submit to that rule. That's a kingdom. So the kingdom is Paul saying, hey, the king has come. He's fulfilled everything you see in the Old Testament. His kingdom is now expanding and you can come into that kingdom by belief in him and be under that rule. Well, what's the rule of King Jesus? I'm convinced that the Sermon on the Mount is the constitution of the kingdom. If you wanna know what Jesus wants the kingdom to look like, wants little outposts of the kingdom in the world right now to look like, it's the Sermon on the Mount. And you read that and you think, if people actually did Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it would be a brilliant, beautiful world. That's the constitution of the kingdom right there. 
So Paul's just preaching that over and over and over again. They reject it. He's like, okay, no problem. Starts to teach in this school. And from there, disciples would leave and go out to their cities and begin sharing the same thing. So there's just this explosion. And this region is about the area the size of California. So in the space of about two years, Paul sends out people to an area the size of California. The dude is unbelievable, brilliant. And then we begin to see a backlash. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, that is an awesome job title. It just amazes me that there's a job that, what are you? I am an itinerant Jewish exorcist. They undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you. They're very kind to evil spirits, (laughs) please. By Jesus whom Paul proclaims, Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? That's the dun da da dun <laughs> And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. We did this on Sunday. I'll add a couple things. Ephesus was known for what was known as the Ephesian scripts. And there were these little like written out uh, incantations that you had to keep unknown. Like you couldn't let anybody know about them. You couldn't know what they said. And that's how they kept their power. Like it was like the secret recipe for Coca-Cola or something. You know, you can't let that out because then we won't have our secret recipe or KFC. So it was like this secret. As long as we keep it unknown, then it has this power. So they were sold for a lot of money. And this was just, Ephesus was known for this. So it's this hyper, hyper spiritual area. And because it's hyper spiritual, verse 11 says, God was doing extraordinary miracles. So to counteract the hyper spirituality of that region, God comes in with extraordinary miracles. Now, what are extraordinary miracles? Because we've seen miracles of lame people walking and the resurrection of the dead. What's an extraordinary miracle? Children doing the dishes? I mean, what is an extraordinary miracle? So something, it's like, uh, Luke is just like, it's, it's incredible what was happening there. That his rags were taken out. Now, were the rags healing people? No. Acts 3 Peter heals a lame man outside the temple and the people are looking at him. He goes, do you think it's my righteousness that healed this guy? Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, healed this guy, right? It's Jesus heals. But what you see 
in the Bible is there's often these points, almost I call them catalysts. You know what a catalyst is? A catalyst is something that's not consumed. It, it just, it, it, it is the platform by which a chemical reaction takes place, but it actually isn't necessary for the chemical reaction. It is necessary for it, but it isn't consumed in it. That's a catalyst. So there's like, God uses these catalysts at times to release people's faith, right? Hey, leper, go bathe in the Jordan River seven times. Now, was it the Jordan River that healed him? Mm-mm. But he had to go do that. That was the catalyst to release his faith. Hey, woman, collect a bunch of jars in your house and pour, now, was it the jars that miraculously expanded? The, well, no, it was just, how many jars are you gonna get in your house? How big is your faith, right? It's these, it's these catalysts, right? Jesus, go bathe in this pool and you'll be healed. Are you gonna obey me? Are you gonna do this? And your faith will be released. Same thing, the shadow of Peter or the sweat rags of Paul, it becomes this catalyst to release faith. And I faced this situation. The second time I was in India, we went to this village that was, they had told me this is a really kind of superstitious village. I'm like, man, that seems like all of them. Uh, but when we got there, these ladies were bringing out these things of water and they were wanting me to pray over them. And so I said, well, why do they want me to pray over the water? And my translator said, well, they believe that if you'll pray over this water, they can pour it around their house and it will fend off evil spirits. And so I'm faced with this like dilemma there, right? What did we do here? Because it's really important for this woman, for me to pray over this water, and there's actually a number of them but I know that water's not gonna do anything for them. So I said, okay, I'll do that, but you gotta translate for me. And so I just translated and I, and I said, hey, we know water's always water. Nothing will happen to this water when I pray for it. What's gonna protect your home is Jesus in your home. That's what's gonna protect your home. So I'll pray for this water and I'm gonna pray for this water that we say, when we pour this around this home, we're inviting Jesus into this home. And that's all it is. It's just a way to say, it's a welcome mat for Jesus. And I said, if, I, if, I, if I'll do that, if we'll agree with that, I'll do that. And they're like, okay, okay, fine. And I don't know how much they got of that, but I felt good about it at that point. All right, I'll pray for this. But the water's not doing anything. It's Jesus that heals. But very often what you see in people's lives is you need a point. Maybe it's a person, maybe it's a location, maybe it's an event, it's something that all the ingredients are right and your faith is released and it's a momentous moment for you. And often what we do, what we do wrongly is we'll try to then recreate that. If I just go back to this place or just have this person do this or we try to reinvent, but it's not it. It's not the location. It's not the person. It's not the event. It was Jesus. And just happened to be that that helped you in that moment release the faith that God had already given to you and great things happen. It's Jesus. Jesus heals. That's not rags, not shadows, not the Jordan River. It's Jesus. So, and, and we all need moments. And sometimes I think it's important for church to give space for those moments. And sometimes it's, hey, raise your hand and get prayed for. And sometimes it's, you know, I, I always wanna say, Father, are we allowing your spirit the freedom to allow church to be the catalyst for you to work because you can out-program the spirit, no doubt. It's always my fear. So if you have a prayer sheet, put that down. Jesus, may Edgewater be a place that's a catalyst for you to work. 
events we do, stuff. It just, it's, it's an opening for you to work. Scripture's being taught, whatever it is, we want you to work because you're the savior. So that's what happens here. And I don't think I can leave this without touching a little bit on the demonic here. Uh, it's freaky. It's a seven-on-one cage match and the one dude wins, right? He wins. If you come to a fight with your pants and you leave without them, you lost. So these guys lost this fight. It's just that simple. <laughs> so just a crazy event. Like this guy gets superhuman and there are superhuman strong people. Have you ever heard of the guy named Joe Rolino? He's considered to be the world's most strongest man. Five foot five, 150 pounds. And he, it was said of him, he could lift 635 pounds with one finger. Yeah, you're like, mm, I don't know about that until you read about him in World War II. So he got the silver medal, a bronze medal, three purple hearts. And there was a battle that was going and he was watching his guys get gunned down. He jumped up, ran out of his safety, went out on the battlefield, grabbed two guys under each arm and carried them off the battlefield multiple times. And you think maybe he is the strongest man in the world. And they did an article on him like in 2010, he was 103 years old. And they said, he's as strong as ever. He would take a quarter at 103 and bend it in half with his teeth. It helped that he had stainless steel dentures. No, he didn't, I'm kidding. <laughs> he's Jaws from... At 104, he died. You know how he died? He got run over by a car. I think he'd still be alive to this day. Like he was, they just said at 103, he was a specimen. And he said this, I was just born strong. I was just born freakishly strong. I don't know what it is. I was just, I knew when I was a, like a baby, I'm strong. Like I was stronger than any other babies in the nursery. I'm just like, thumb, thumb. All right, well, dude, you're so, like Bam Bam, right? Is that the name of the kid from Flintstones? He's like that. So this guy somehow demonically empowered has this phenomenal strength, like crazy. So you read this and you start thinking, what's the deal with this? What's the deal with the demonic? It's a freaky subject. And when we get the building, we're gonna do a, probably a month of Thursday mornings where we're gonna go from Genesis 3, the first sighting, to Revelation 20, the last sighting, of the unseen realm. And I don't have time to do that right now, but I'll give you a real quick kind of hmm on this stuff. So big picture, you have to start asking these questions. These guys are dabbling in something and when they dabble in it, they get hurt. Like the high priest is their dad. He's not at the temple. Why is he not at the temple? Like there's some stuff that's not right here. And probably the stuff that is not right in their life has opened them up to getting the snot kicked out of them by demons. That's probably what's happened here. So what about you and me? Those that have believed in Jesus Christ. The Greek is demonized. It's often translated possessed. Can we be demonized? Can we be oppressed? Can we be attacked? Can we be controlled by an alien force like a demon? Like, what about you and me? Where are we at? 
Most people, what they do is they go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 through, like 16, no, not 14. Yeah, 14 through 16. And it, it, it's, it's Paul, they're saying, hey, what fellowship does an unbeliever have with a believer? What fellowship does Christ have with Satan, Belial? What fellowship does the temple have with idols? God with Satan, right? There's all these things. And it's really, these things don't belong together. But you have to ask yourself, have they ever been together? Have there ever been idols, verse 16, in God's temple? Sadly, yes, Second Kings chapter 21. They brought in multiple times, brought in idols right into the court, brought them in there. Not supposed to be that way, but it definitely happened, okay? How, how about, has there ever been the presence of Satan in God's presence? Yeah, Job chapter one, right? Job marches right in and God asks him a question. Hey, have you seen my servant Job? Job's going, please don't ask about me. <laughs> Anybody but me, right? You have this interaction with, with Jesus and Peter where Jesus is asking, hey, who, who do men say that I am? Matthew 16, right? And they're like, ah, oh, you're John the Baptist, you're Jeremiah, you're that prophet, all these answers. And then, no, who do you guys say that I am? You're the Christ, the son of God. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. This is supernatural what just happened with you. You, had, you made the confession of faith here. That was awesome. Well, read a couple more verses. Jesus says, I'm going to the cross. And Peter takes him aside and says, no, you are not. And what does Jesus do? Get thee behind me, Satan. Who is Jesus talking to? Is he talking to Satan or to Peter? Yes. Right? Yeah. What happened? There's a power that came into Peter. Look at what happened to Judas. No doubt. Now, Judas has not made a proclamation of faith like Peter had, but major problem, right? You have Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. What is that? Paul's a good dude, right? So when you start putting all the data together, the picture is not as easy as, you would like to, as we'd like to make it, right? Jesus, did Jesus ever face off with Satan? Matthew 4, right? Matthew 4. Why did Satan attack Jesus? Did he sin and open a portal for Satan to get him? No. Was there generational sin in his background? No, his heavenly father is pure too, right? <laughs> There's no reason other than him being the son of God and on the other team to get attacked. We have to realize that. You and I, are sons of God, daughters of God, Galatians chapter four. We've been adopted into his family. We are the enemy now. So we have to realize, yeah, we're fair game. Just like Jesus was fair game. Does that mean I can be controlled by a demon? No, no doubt. But I can certainly have that thorn in my flesh. I can certainly have just like Jesus attacked. So what do we do then in that situation? You do exactly what Jesus did. Three times, he says to Satan what? It is written. Every time Satan attacks him, Jesus has a Bible verse. And it's not a coincidence. It's not like he does it once and then goes to a different method. Every single time, 
Bible verse. It is written three times. And then after he uses the Bible verse, number two, he rebukes him. Get out of here. You have no part in me. Get lost. As a believer, you have the power over the enemy. He can only deceive you, but you have the power over him. And then thirdly, it says that angels came and renewed him. I think as believers, we're always to be renewed. And that means prayer. That means the Bible. That means community. That means thinking well, Philippians chapter four, verse eight, having those kind of thoughts in our mind, being careful, guarding us, because the Bible also warns believers in Ephesus of all places. It's Ephesians 4, 27. It says this, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't give a topos in the Greek to Satan. You know what? Uh, Topographical map is? That's what we're saying. Don't give him a little location. You, you, if you let anger settle into your heart when you go to bed at night, it's like you chip away a foothold for Satan to come and get you. So there are things that we do and we engage in that do allow Satan to get a little foothold in us and then use that foothold to then try to pry in more and more garbage. So we have to be careful, no doubt. Romans 6 says the same thing. Whoever you yield your members to, you become their slave. If you yield to righteousness, you become a slave to right things. If you yield to unrighteousness, you then become a slave to unrighteousness. Now, we have to be careful, no doubt about it. But just because the enemy is attacking you doesn't mean there's generational sin in your life, doesn't mean you sinned. It could simply mean you're doing really well and I wanna take you out. And we, we, it is written, rebuke and get renewed. Get around people, call a friend. Hey man, I'm struggling, pray for me. That's what you do, just like Jesus did. So as believers, we have to take the complex story. So 1 John 5, 19 says, the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. That's a phenomenal statement right there. The world we live in, Paul says he's the prince of the power of the air. He still has a realm of rule. He's still there. But then on the other side, we have to know this, Colossians 2.15, Jesus has triumphed over him and greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. The one thing Satan has right now is deceit. If he can get you to believe his lies, that's a foothold. And then he just spins us in circles. That's why scripture is so important. Scripture, scripture, scripture. Because we're discovering what we already have been given. That's most of scripture. Second Peter 1, 3. You have already been given everything you need for life and for godliness. It's already been given to you. Now just use it. We're like Dorothy with the shoes on. We just have to remember, we already got them. We already got them. The Wizard of Oz is the fraud. We've got them already, okay? So that's a quick one. It's crazy, no doubt. But the good thing is this. Verse 17, the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled and the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Another thing we see is this, is what I call judo theology. It's all throughout Acts. You take what the Satan wanted to use for evil and God turns it here and purifies the church and great power is released. Now, verse 21, is it hot in here? My goodness. <sighs> I thought it was just me. I'm gonna have to cast the demon out of the air conditioner. Where's it at? 
Oh man, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> now after these events, I'll get an email on that one. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About this time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of, Ar- Ar- of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying, gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Uh, this classic, just the destabilizing nature of the gospel. These men are like, they're making money and they're just all upset. Like, are you kidding? This little thing I worked on for the last year isn't a God? No way, man. Yours isn't, it's, it's, it's junky, but mine, look how good it is. It's definitely a God. Like, it's really kind of funny. So they're like, this is not right. No way, these are gods. And no one's coming and buying them anymore. How cool is that? In the space of two years, the very economy of Ephesus is being thrown on its head. It gets so bad in Asia. There's a letter Pliny the Younger writes to the emperor Trajan. Listen to this. Quote, there's a letter about 2,000 years old. There's no doubt this is not literally 2,000 years old. <laughs> There's no doubt the people had begun to throng to the temples, which had been almost entirely deserted for a long time. The sacred rites, which had been allowed to lapse, are being performed again, and the flesh of sacrificial victims is on sale everywhere, though up till recently, scarcely anyone could be found to buy it. So what they did is they made new laws, forcing people to go to the temple, forcing them to buy this stuff. And it was barely working. That's how powerful the gospel was in Asia, transformed it. I have a message in my pocket. At some point I'll do it on a Sunday. I think we can do the same thing today. I think our mandate is actually to do that, to so destabilize the culture that we're in that the very economy of our county is changed. That's what's supposed to be happening. It was like normal. It was happening all the size of California. Things had changed drastically, right? So just brilliant, brilliant. So that happens and this is what happens. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, giant theater, 30,000 people, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, wisdom. And even some 
of the Asiarchs, these were the guys that were in control, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. So awesome. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Nutty. It's like World Cup nutty, right? So mobs are freaky. Verse 32, some cried one thing, some cried another. Most of them did not know why they had come together. The majority of this mob is like, what are we doing? I don't know. Let's just keep doing it though. It's called social proof. Social proof is this. It's the, um, if you get a big enough group together, big enough social proof together, well, they're all doing it. I guess it must be right. The proof is enough people are doing it. It's a term, social proof. I have this book called Wisdom of Crowds. A brilliant book. Just one of my favorite little like books that has all these crazy stories in it. Like they did this. Here's how the wisdom of crowds works. They had this big jar of jelly, bean, jelly beans and they asked people to guess how many were in there. And a bunch of people guessed. They took all of the numbers, averaged them together and the average was the right number of jelly beans. That's the wisdom of crowds. Like it was a bell curve, a Gaussian distribution and boom, it hit it on the nose. It's amazing stuff. But then the same book said, beware though. The crowd can go crazy and wrong, social proof. And they quote one of Stanley Milgram's, uh, you know, all of his, just, just amazing stuff he did. And, and they did this study where they t- take a guy and they put him on a corner and he'd look up in the sky, just one guy. And it was just one guy, barely anybody would stop. Like, ah, this guy's a freak. <laughs> 15 guys, 40% of the people would stop. Double that number to 30, 80% of the people would stop and look up with them like, what's up, right? Social proof. It's just, you get enough people doing something and then everyone else thinks, oh, well, that must make that right. And this answers the age old question that every single mom has asked their son. If everybody was jumping off a bridge, would you? <laughs> of course I would, social proof. <laughs> Come on, mom, I'm not gonna be the one weirdo. (laughs) Here's the warning. We live in an age where this social proof thing really hurts people. Because now you make one little mistake and someone catches it on video, your life is over. Did you read about Teresa Lund today? Anybody read about her? Oh, so she probably used to work for the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative. And on Saturday, she was having a bad day. She's trying to put her kids down. Parents trying to put babies down, bad day, right? She comes out, there's a mom with her daughter down there who's playing in like this courtyard in Cambridge and her daughter's being loud. So her kids aren't going to sleep. So this lady comes down there and is like, hey, could you go do this somewhere else? Well, the lady's like, no, I live here. I've been living here a long time. Well, Teresa Lunn, 
who works for Harvard Humanitarian Initiative, which reaches out to like groups of people that have been marginalized, that's her job, said some things that were very inappropriate. Do you live in the affordable housing part of this complex? You're just like, oh, you, I cannot. Caught on that, she's been erased from Harvard's website. I guarantee they're working on a settlement right now. One mistake, she's gone. One bad day. I don't think that's fair, personally. Justine Stackel, remember her? The girl that went to Africa and she, 2013, she put on her Twitter account just this little joke like, I'm going to Africa. I hope I'm gonna get AIDS, LOL, I'm so white. To her 170 Twitter followers. Like, not, not, she's not like a big Twitter person. Explodes. Like on the plane, the 10-hour flight just explodes. She lands, her phone goes crazy. Someone's there videoing her when she gets off the plane and posting that she gets fired from her job. In her interview recently, she said, if I was to get hit on the head and have amnesia and come to and Google my name, I would hate myself. Man, just you're like, oh, we gotta be really careful about that. Right, the mob, look out for the mob. The mob on Sunday said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one that comes. And then by Thursday, crucify him, crucify him. We're not to be that. We're to be people that are people of grace, giving people the same kind of freedom that that we would want. Yeah, you made a mistake. Okay, no problem. So have I. That's what we're to be. Be super careful of this. Our model is Jesus, not social proof. Our model is not people standing in the corner doing the same thing. Our model completely has to be, what would Jesus do here? How would Jesus reach out to them? The mob wants to stone the woman for what she did. What did Jesus do? Defended her. Go and sin no more. Forgave her. That's our model. So be so careful. So careful. So I'll quickly finish here. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, which is a miracle, right? How do you quiet a mob? Just look at Paris right now, right? How do you quiet a mob? You don't. They tear things apart. Like it's God protecting Paul again. Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. Real quick, one, two things. Number one, verses 21 through 41 is not a spiritual issue, is it? They act like it. We're defending the honor of Artemis. But what's the real issue? Money, money, okay? People do the same thing today. They'll have, I've got a problem with Christianity or I've got a problem with this or a problem with the Bible, whatever it is right? Very often that's a smoke screen for something else. It's, it's always like to me, it's Genesis three. We've done something bad and we're hiding from God. 
And we, we now, because we've done something wrong, we don't want to be around, I call it the gaze of God. We don't wanna be seen as naked and vulnerable. We run from the gaze of God because there's actually something deeper going on. So I deal with like, my wife and I talked about this a long time ago. Like we have these kids that do really well in high school and they go up to college and, and then they, they were on fire and you had great fruit from their life. And then in college, they, they hear something or something happens and they come back and they don't believe. And I'll sit and talk with them. Like, okay, tell me what's going on. And they always have something. Well, it's the exclusivity of Christianity that I just can't take. All right, so I'll try to work that through. Well, it's the inconsistencies in scripture that I can't take. Okay, let's deal with that. Well, my professor said this. Oh, okay, okay. Well, what about the aborigine or the person that never heard? So I'll try to work through all those things and give them good answers and press them. And nine out of 10 times, here's what I come to. Well, you know, I have my doubts, but I also moved in with my boyfriend. Ah, the gaze of God. You're running right now from the gaze of God. That's your true problem. And I think as believers, we should always press people. Okay, give me your best. Let's talk about that. Let's, let's deal through those issues because almost always what you find is underneath that, ah, there's the real problem. Now we get to what's really causing you to run from Jesus. Press people in the kindest way, no doubt. Inviting them into a conversation. Please tell me what your problem is. Okay, let's talk that through, okay. All right, that makes sense. Well, okay, let's... And very often you'll find the real issue, just like here. Then secondly, verse 19, the church purifies itself. People have all kinds of numbers here. It's 50,000 single day wages. So whatever you make in one day, multiply that by 50,000. That's how much stuff the church got rid of right here. And they get powerful. The Bible says this to us, it's second. Corinthians 13, five, examine yourself. Just like we go in for physical examinations for our health, the Bible calls you and me to examine ourselves. How am I doing? How am I doing? Because purity brings power. Have you heard of uranium 235? I think the government just got some of it stolen in Texas. <laughs> you read about that? Anyone? You guys ever read the news? <laughs> Yeah, they had, yeah, it's a long story. It doesn't even matter. So uranium-235 occurs in nature. It's about 0.78%. Uh, not very pure, doesn't do anything. Useless at that purity. If you purify it to 4%, it's called reactor-grade uranium. And you can turn your lights on with it. You can charge your iPhone with it. You can plug your Tesla in. It does really good things. It's got some power now because it got purity. If you keep purifying it, to just above 85%, it becomes highly enriched uranium or weapons-grade uranium. Guess what we can do with that? A lot of power. Most powerful thing known to mankind because it's purified. When the church is pure, man, power flows through it. It just flows through it. So we're called, like this church at Ephesus, to say, Psalm 139, verse 22 and 23, God, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me on the way everlasting. Am I clinging to something that's killing me? Cure me from it. So tonight we get to go to the table. And I believe the table is to be a celebration, a remembrance of what Jesus did. Not a remembrance of how bad I am, but a remembrance of how, what Jesus has done. 
Because I believe that it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. When you remember how good the king is and how great his kingdom is going to be, man, it causes you to have a change of appetite. It causes you to say, I'm gonna let go of that stuff that's sinking me. I'm gonna hold on to Jesus. So maybe take a moment as it's being passed out and just pray Psalm 139. Jesus, search my heart. Is there something that I'm holding on to that's actually killing me? And I wanna let it go and hold only on to you. So Jesus, this day, we thank you for a condensed chapter, so dense, so full. We thank you how a city was transformed when your spirit invaded some disciples and a messenger brought the good news of the kingdom and the king. We ask that even this night, Lord, you would reinvade us. We're told to be filled with your spirit. Would you fill us with your spirit so that we can go from here and be agents of change, communicators of grace, lovers of people, destabilizers of systems that are polluted and wrong. So fill us. Would you help us like a a baby holding on to a toy that's hurting them, would you help us drop things that are hindering your flow of power through us? And may we be a people that remember you and cling to you alone. Would you search us and see if there be any wicked way in us lead us on the path everlasting, we ask. Amen.